This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. So conflict's kind of a funny thing. Uh, you either love conflict or you hate it and you will do just about anything to avoid it. Now, if you are an Enneagram 8, any Enneagram 8s in the room, uh, I know you will raise your hand because you know you are one of those and you want everyone to know you are one of those. Enneagram 8s, they are the challenger. They are the powerful dominating type who are self-confident, who are decisive, who are willful, and wait for it, they are confrontational. They, they enjoy confrontation. They, they seek it out. It is like a game for them. And if they can't find it, they'll just make some confrontation just for fun. But the rest of us, which is like most of us, like over 95% of us, we'll do just about anything to avoid conflict, won't we? I hear the heads rattling about now. Because it's uncomfortable. It's, it's, it's messy. And we are in prime confrontation season during the holidays, aren't we? It kicks off with Thanksgiving. It continues with Christmas. And then we have New Year's to bring confrontation season to a close. But we don't like it. So what, like, what do we do? How do we, how do we respond? You know, it's easier to just pretend like conflict doesn't exist at all, does it? Like there, there, there's nothing to see here. Everything's fine. We're that dog in the burning house meme. Or, or doing everything in our power to prevent it from ever occurring. Uh, managing all the personalities, trying to keep everybody happy in hopes of finding this supposed peace of God, Paul writes of, which is apparently so mind-blowing that it surpasses all understanding. Like, like we can't even comprehend it. But that's not how this works, is it? Because see, the presence of peace, it is... It is about so much more than simply the absence of conflict. And what we're going to see this morning is we're going to see the cause of conflict as Paul responds to some conflict that existed in, in the church in Philippi. And then we're going to see the pursuit of peace. As Paul shows us three ways to pursue peace, not only for our own good, but for the good of one another. And so let's first look at the, the cause of conflict because as, as, as healthy and united as this church in Philippi was that Paul's writing to, it wasn't without conflict. And he says in verse 2, he says, I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to, to agree in the Lord. And so about now you might be thinking, like, who are these two women and what are they disagreeing over? Like, what, what is their conflict about? What was the cause of their conflict? And... And thanks to uh, 2,000 years of in-depth scholarship from men and women throughout the church and throughout the academy, uh, it, it is safe to say uh, we have absolutely no idea. We got none. This is all we got. And, and you know what we do when we come across something like this that we don't know? We try even harder to know, don't we? Right, there are people who have written PhD theses on just who these women were and what it was they were disagreeing on. Over how many words is this? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Twelve words can get you a thesis anymore. But who are they? Why did they disagree? But you know, it's it's not entirely bad that we try and find this this out, to try and uncover this. 
We, we should seek to understand the cultural context, the, the, the why behind the what, because as we said so many times, if we must understand why something was written, we are going to misunderstand what was written. And so we should follow those textual and, and cultural clues as far as we can, but knowing that we can only follow them so far. Knowing that this letter, it, it wasn't written to us, was it? No, it was written to those in Philippi. It was written to people who very much knew who these women were and very much knew what their disagreement was about. And so while we might not know who these women were, Paul definitely knew. He, he knew them well. He says in verse 3 that, that these two women, they labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement, another person we know next to nothing about, not as fun of a dissertation as the other two women because he just kind of gets a sidebar mention and the rest of my fellow workers. So these likely former pagan Gentiles, given their, their Greek name, it was, they were actually both common slave names, they were now followers of Jesus. They were now followers of the way whose names are in the book of life, he says. A phrase with Old Testament uh, roots referring to those belonging to God, his beloved adopted daughters, Paul's sisters in Christ. But they were not only fellow followers of Jesus, they were also Paul's fellow workers, bringing the message of the gospel to those in Philippi, helping more people know Jesus and showing them how to faithfully follow the way of Jesus, helping them grow to be more like Jesus and giving no indication here that these women served in any sort of limited or, or diminished role in the church due to their gender. In fact, some believe they may very well have been overseers of the church or elders. Uh, the first century church father, John Chrysostom, writes, it appears that these women were, in fact, the heads of the church at Philippi. In fact, that may be why Paul addresses the overseers uh, in, in the beginning, in the greeting of the letter alongside the rest of the church, something he does in no other letter, he only does here. And when you think back to the, the founding of this church, it, it kind of makes sense because uh, Paul, he, he planted this church, he started this church with, with a group of women that he met uh, one Sabbath who were down uh, along the river praying. And one of those women, her name was Lydia. She was the first to believe. She was the first to be baptized. It says her and her household. And then she hosted Paul and, and Luke and Timothy in her home where this church began to meet. A story Luke writes in Acts 16. But whatever their role, what we do know is that it was of some significance in the church given that they are both mentioned by name in a letter written to the entire church. But for Paul, there's no need to say any more about who they are because he knew and the Philippians knew. But he also says very little about what it is they disagreed over. He, he, he doesn't mention the cause of their conflict, but, but Paul knew. He, he knew because uh, Epaphroditus, remember, he is the one that they sent back to visit Paul in prison and he would have relayed and told him the story of all that had gone on. And it was, likely, it was likely not a minor issue, uh, given the sense of urgency with which Paul addresses each individual by name, but instead something that was now beginning to, to impact the unity of the church as a whole. 
It was not good, not a minor issue. It was also likely not a theological issue, given that he provides no theological response of any kind. He, he, he gives no indication of, of how we should be thinking about the issue at hand or that one was right and one was wrong or that maybe they were both wrong. But instead entreats them to agree in the Lord, meaning this was much more likely a, a disagreement on how the church should proceed with the decision not between a, a right way and a wrong way, but simply between two different ways. Possibly a disagreement on if they should continue to support Paul financially or not, given what he says later on in chapter 4 of how uh, for a period of time they were unable to support him financially, but they had since revived their support, and, and given what he wrote to the Corinthians, that they, they faced extreme poverty. But what we have here is we have, we have two people. And we have two sides, bringing two different perspectives, two different experiences, sharing two different ways of looking at something, offering two different ways forward, both thinking they were right and the other side was wrong. It's sort of like with, um, it's sort of like with the bears right now. There's a lot of this right now. Um, you got one side who says, yeah, we ride this thing out with Justin Fields next year, Amen. Ah, okay, so you guys are in the group that thinks we should use the number one pick to draft his replacement. Okay, I see you giving up on him in three years already. Yeah. yeah or uh, some think, you know what, let's ride it out with his coaching staff next year. They've won like, you know, no games in two years, but let's, let's go one more. Or should we clear house and start over next year? And, and here's the thing, like talking politics and religion Maybe less controversial topic in Chicagoland over the holiday season than talking about the future of our beloved Chicago Bears. Just a little heads up going into conflict season. But people take sides on this stuff, don't we? We, we, we form factions, assumptions are made, especially about each other's motives. Because see, the, the cause of conflict, it, it, it's rooted in, in a difference, a difference of typically one of five things. A difference of information. Maybe it's, it's missing information or what is to believe inaccurate or irrelevant information. Maybe, you know, you're having a discussion with someone caught up in the latest uh, conspiracy theory or someone sharing a very one-sided story from cable news leaving out the other side of the story. It could be a difference in information. It could be a difference in priorities. You might both think something is important, but one of you think it is most important. Or, number three, viewing the same situation from, from different perspectives. Having had different experiences. Take, for example, someone who has experienced firsthand racial discrimination is going to have a very different view of situations than someone who has not. Or it could be a, a difference of values especially when you feel as though someone else's values are being imposed on you. Uh, for example, political values or religious values or a difference in the value that we place on someone's humanity. Be it their race, be it their gender, be it their ability. And, and then one that we see that often takes place uh, less against individuals, more against groups of people, is, is a difference of resources. Especially when one group has a significant amount more of something than the other, be it wealth or status, be it land or food or even time, resulting in oppressive behaviors that are exerted on others. 
And what starts as a lack of listening, simply refusing to listen to another's view, another's perspective, another's story, that lack of listening often leads to a lack of learning. Learning the why behind their what, entering into their story, which ultimately leads to a lack of love and treating them as an other, as an enemy to be defeated rather than as a neighbor to be loved. That's true of conflict in churches as we see here in Philippi. That's true in our homes with our families. Uh, it's true in relationships with our friends. It's true in our jobs with our coworkers. It's true of conflict that exists between individuals and it's true of conflict that exists between groups of people. And when we're caught up in this conflict, sometimes, sometimes we need help in resolving the conflict, don't we? We need, we need someone, a third party, to step in and, and mediate, be it a, a friend or a pastor or a therapist or, or even a legal mediator, depending on the nature of the conflict. Because as we, as we become further entrenched, we begin to lose sight of the peace that we're called to pursue and the unity that we're called to protect. And instead, we become focused more on being right and proving the other side wrong, don't we? We become more focused on our own good rather than the good of others, focused on our own glory rather than the glory of God. And that's why Paul asked his trusted companion to step in and help, this, this unnamed someone that they may very well have been, Epaphroditus, who would have carried this letter back and read it to the church. Someone who he knew, knew these women and loved this church Someone who was mature enough to remain impartial, pursuing peace for the good of one another. Because the thing about conflict, when left unaddressed, when left unresolved, it festers and it grows until eventually we blow, it bursts. And so how do we go about pursuing peace then? I think we're really good at getting caught up in conflict, aren't we? Probably don't need to give you five steps on how to get caught up in conflict. We got that one down. Uh, but how do we pursue peace? Well, it depends. It, it depends on how you view peace, on how you define peace. Viewing peace either as the presence of something or as the absence of something. Because, see, oftentimes we view peace not as the presence of something, but as the absence of something, as the absence of conflict. Peace, in that sense, is a lot like thermodynamics, isn't it? Heads all of a sudden popped up, I saw there, yeah. It's a lot like thermodynamics. That's it, just basically the study of heat transfer. So think of, think of something hot and think of something cold. Now, uh, heat is generated by the movement and vibration of particles. You didn't know you were going to science class today, did you? And so as the movement of those particles increases, the heat increases. And that heat is the thing that is measured seeing how much heat something has, but cold, on the other hand, isn't actually a thing. In fact, it's the absence of a thing. It's the absence of heat. And so, for example, when you put hot coffee into a cold cup, mind you, don't ever do that. Warm your cup up first like a civilized human being and pour hot coffee into a hot cup. But you didn't know that before this morning. So if you pour hot coffee into a cold cup, what happens is the heat transfers from the coffee to the cup. It warms the cup as the coffee loses heat. And I think that's kind of how we view 
the concept of peace. We, we view conflict as the thing, like heat, and we view peace as simply the absence of the thing, like cold. But that couldn't be any further than the way that God views peace. See, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament scriptures used for peace is, is shalom. And it's uh, not merely the absence of conflict, it is the presence of something. It is the sense of, of well-being, of, of wholeness, of completeness, not just uh, within an individual, but between individuals and with all of creation. It is a description of the way things were back in the very good beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. That is God's view of peace. That is the peace that Paul is entreating Utica and Syntyche to pursue. That is the peace that Jesus calls all of his followers to pursue. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the avoiders of conflict. But when we view peace as nothing more than the absence of conflict, we simply end up avoiding conflict. And we do this in a couple ways. We, we avoid conflict sometimes by pretending it doesn't exist. Like there's, there's nothing to see here. We, we are an ostrich bearing our head in the sand, and, and that is often motivated by fear. So much of what we do is motivated by fear. Like we're afraid to confront conflict, aren't we? We're, we're afraid of what we might lose. And so we go about this in three different ways. We sometimes pretend by simply failing to address the conflict. Driven by a fear of what might happen if we say something, if we do something. I, I might make it worse if I say something. So we just, we just sweep it under the rug. We just absorb it in ourselves, hoping it'll just magically go away. Hint, it don't ever just go away. It festers and it grows. We also pretend by covering up conflict, don't we? Especially when we're the ones who's done something wrong. We're afraid of what might happen if people see who we really are and know what we've done. And we fear the consequences. We fear the relational consequences. We fear uh, the financial and legal consequences. And so we just, we just cover it up. That'll make it go away. And sometimes we pretend by rejecting the presence of conflict altogether. Like we, we, we believe that there's actually nothing Wrong. It doesn't even actually exist. It's just another boogeyman. For example, refusing to acknowledge injustice and impression of others based on their race or gender. Refusing to acknowledge the skeletons that exist in, in the church's closet and failing to acknowledge the skeletons that exist in our country's closet. And when we pretend the conflict doesn't exist, it never brings about peace. And so we avoid by pretending it doesn't exist. We also avoid conflict by preventing it from ever occurring, or at least trying to. And, and we try to, we're trying to maintain control of the situation. We go about this in a couple of ways. We, we go about it passively by preventing conflict, by simply trying to appease everyone, by trying to keep everyone happy. If, uh, if you've got little kids, you likely experience this at dinner time. You probably start to feel like a short-order cook making everybody their own separate meal because no one will eat the same thing or eat at the same time and that is exhausting you also feel the family gatherings trying to like especially if you're hosting trying to balance all those spinning plates all those personalities just just hoping you can make it through with everyone still on speaking terms when they leave so that they might come back next time 
We do it passively, but we also do it aggressively. We do it aggressively by uh, preventing conflict, by threatening further conflict. Right? If you do this, then I'm going to do that. And the, that typically involves threatening to withhold something from someone, something they need, something they desire, or threatening to inflict something on someone. That something typically being violence. Threatening violence in order to prevent violence. And that is not peacemaking. That is not pursuing peace. That's pursuing power. Right? That's, that's not pursuing justice. That's pursuing vengeance. That's, that's not pursuing any sort of reconciliation. That's pursuing retaliation. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, those who pursue peace, not those who avoid conflict. And so that requires a very different approach than simply avoiding conflict altogether. And so this next part of the passage, some debate how it's connected to what came before. Paul's known at the end of his letters to just kind of rapid fire, get all the rest of the things out. But I think, I think this connects to it in that he's showing us three things that we need to consider in our pursuit of peace. Showing us what we need to remind ourselves, what we need to show to others, and what it is we need to say to God. And so he starts here with what we need to remind ourselves. And we, we need reminders because we're quick to forget, aren't we, don't we? And he, he shares a phrase that has probably become rather familiar in our time in this letter by now. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. It's a, it's a reminder here to, to celebrate even in the midst of conflict. Rejoicing not only when we feel like it, but always, he says. No matter our circumstances. Because see, while our circumstances will change, and they're constantly changing, our source of joy and our reason for rejoicing is constant and forever unchanging, isn't it? And so what do we rejoice in? Well, we rejoice in who God is, don't we? That he's not only sovereign and powerful, uh, infinitely transcendent over our conflict, but that he's also loving and faithful, that he is intimately present with us in the midst of our conflict. And so we rejoice in who God is. We rejoice in what God has done and that he has resolved the conflict that existed between us and him, resolving that in and through Christ on the cross and bringing about peace between us and God. And we rejoice in all that he has promised to do, resolving the conflict that exists within all of creation. Conflict brought about by the mere presence of sin and pursuing peace within creation. The presence of shalom, knowing that it will once again be very good as it was in the very good beginning. And that promise of lasting peace, it brings about joy that allows us to rejoice in the Lord, not sometimes, but all the time. Sometimes rejoicing because we remember, and other times rejoicing because we need to remember. That's what we need to remind ourselves. Second, he shows us that we pursue peace by what it is that we show to others, a posture that we take before others. He says in verse five, let your reasonableness, let your gentleness, let your gentle spirit be known to everyone. Now, some animals, um, you're getting a lot of science today. Uh, a lot of, there are some animals who, when threatened, they'll, they'll get smaller. 
and try and hide. Some animals even play dead, like possums, um, which really can we just acknowledge? We just say we're just we're dead, not playing dead. Uh, possums were a Genesis three animal. I'm convinced of that. But other animals, like say, take the frilled neck lizard. Take my friend here. Now this dude, he's not as big as he looks. Okay, when he's threatened, he takes an aggressive posture to make himself look bigger, to make himself look more threatening than he actually is. And while we may play possum at times, I think we're more apt to take an aggressive posture when we're threatened. Our body tenses up, our blood pressure builds, and we begin to threaten conflict in order to prevent conflict, all in hopes of the other side being the first to blink, the other side backing down. And while that may delay conflict temporarily, it in no way pursues peace which is why Paul calls us to take an entirely different posture before others. Eugene Peterson, he, he paraphrases this in the message saying, make it as clear as you can to all you meet that you're on their side, that you're working with them, not against them. Make it abundantly clear that your intent is to pursue peace not only for your own good, but for the good of one another, for the good of others, and for the glory of God. Taking on a posture of gentleness that seeks to disarm rather than to threaten. Right? Taking on a posture of reasonableness that seeks to understand rather than impose. Uh, taking on a posture that assumes the best of one another rather than the worst. A posture, as we saw in chapter 2, that does nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility counts others more significant than yourself. A posture that looks not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Which is exactly the posture that Jesus took, isn't it? A posture we see in the Christ hymn in chapter 2. A posture that pursues peace rather than simply avoiding conflict and escalating conflict. That's what we remind ourselves, that's what we show to others. And next he, he goes on to say what we say to God. He says in verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Now, uh, we have to have a little clarification point here when we come across this word anxiety in Scripture. Um, Paul's not referring to anxiety disorders here. What I'll often refer to as capital A, big A, anxiety. Something that we seek the help of medical professionals to guide us through, be it a, a therapist like I work with with my own diagnosis, or a psychologist or a psychiatrist prescribing medication, right? Uh, big A anxiety, that's not something we pray away. That's not something that if you just have more faith, will go away. No, that's not what Paul's talking about here. No, Paul, he, he's talking about just this everyday run-of-the-mill anxious feeling. He's talking about worry, or what we call little A anxiety. Peterson paraphrases this, just don't, don't fret or worry, right? Do not be worried about anything, which is exactly what Jesus said, wasn't it? Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's got enough. We'll, we'll, we'll take care of that tomorrow. Focus on today. Don't worry about it. Why? He says, because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. He means a couple things by this. The Lord is, is near. He's near uh, temporally in that his return is near. It is imminent. And when he returns, all conflict will be resolved. His peace will reign. But He's also near spatially in that his presence is near. Jesus said, I will be with you always until the end of the age. 
he is with us in our conflict. He hears our prayers. And that, that means something. That changes the way that we pursue peace. And so rather than pretending that there's nothing to worry about, rather than trying to prevent there being anything to worry about, Paul says that in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, with a, with a posture of gratitude for who God is and what God has done, let your request be made known to God for all that you hope he will do. Not so that he'll know. He already knows. He just wants you coming to him. Rather than internalizing your fear, he, he wants us to verbalize it turning to God in prayer, telling him what's consuming your mind with worry, knowing that he is intimately present with you in your worry, knowing his presence is near. He is near the brokenhearted, David writes in Psalm 34. But not only that, rather than seizing control, he wants us to release control, trusting God with our prayers, telling him what it is that you desire, Letting your request be made known to a God who already knows. Your request for a desire for peace, for the conflict you're experiencing to, to be resolved, to, to show you a way forward out of this, washing away your worries, knowing that he is infinitely transcendent over your worry and intimately present within your worry. On my run yesterday, I was listening to a song and there was a lyric that went over and over. God's not worried. So why do I worry? Guys, God's not worried. He's not surprised. He's not unaware. He knows all, he sees all, and he is with us in all. So he says in verse seven, he says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Another clarification. Please don't hear what Paul's not saying here. He's not saying that if you simply follow these rules, then all of your worries will go away. There will never be conflict in your life. It will just all magically be resolved. No, that's not what he's saying. I wished it's what he was saying. It'd be a great sermon, wouldn't it? You'd be taking notes on that one. No, he's saying that if in the midst of conflict that you remember who God is and what he has done and all he's promised to do, that if you take a posture of humility toward others, seeking the good of others, and that you share your worries with God, releasing them to him in prayer, then this peace that is beyond our ability to comprehend on our own, beyond our ability to manufacture on our own, it will begin to settle in calming your heart and quieting your mind so that you are not only overcome with peace, but now able to begin to pursue peace, agreeing in the Lord with those you find yourself in contact, or conflict with, finding common ground, finding a way forward, one that promotes unity among God's people within the church rather than animosity, one that seeks the good of one another and the glory of God. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.